So we're uh, back in James. Um, for me, the first time, kind of adding to what um, both David, the two Davids, and Ian have, have said before us. Um, one of the things that has struck me about this book is the compelling evidence that there is that it was written by James, who was the younger, one of the younger brothers of the Lord Jesus. If that's true, and I think it is, although it is um, based on speculation, I would say, more than any hard, um, indisputable fact, if it's true, it's inconceivable for me to think that there wouldn't be some evidence of um, James growing up in the company of the incarnate eternal son of God. Um, and it intrigues me to look out for evidence, and I think there is. Um, one of the things you'll see as we explore our topics today is James seems to talk about topics in extremes. So a lot of the subjects are on a continuum, and for the purpose of emphasis and illustration, he seems to reference the two extremes. And I was reflecting on how that may have been his experience uh, with his older brother um, seeing extreme purity and holiness on the one side and then back down to earth um, seeing really quite the opposite in perhaps quite a simple way as a naughty boys kind of um, go about their daily lives and there would be this extreme comparison so maybe we'll see some evidence that supports that of course we don't know how old James was so um, it could be that the Lord was grown up and in adulthood by the times James arrived so again there is a little bit of speculation in my mind and whoever came up with that illustration that uh, the two boys at some point were buddies going fishing together but it's um, it's really quite a compelling thought to me that we're we've got a special insight into um, what was important to the now converted James the brother of the Lord I think David Woods in his opening um, introduction was keen to emphasize that James doesn't reference it you know I'm the brother of the Lord and that speaks to his, um, I think, reverence and respect for the true identity of the Lord Jesus that um, he describes himself as a, as a servant, not as a, a half-brother um, or whatever. Another uh, quotation that I noticed in um, looking through the background, and we clearly know that James is very much focusing on faith in action and someone has said that this book is a treaty on faith the proof that I've been justified by faith is seen in my good works I think that's a really great summary and it kind of dispels some of the conflict that if we look at the book superficially we might um, get ourselves tied up a little bit in terms of things like faith without works being dead and um, the extrapolation of that quotation in, in isolation is that you need to work out your own salvation, which is clearly not true. 
um, based on the vast proportion of other scriptures that teach faith is by grace, sorry, salvation is by grace through faith. So we consider James as, the book of James, as a, a treaty. The proof that I've been justified by faith is seen in my good works. Where have we been so far? Um, the two Davids, Woods and King, developed this program that we're going through. So the whole of the book of James um, was given this umbrella title of embracing the life. That is the Christian life that's living by faith. And we've had the testing of your faith, the triumph in trial and temptation, saving your souls, that's very much about saving or living sanctified lives, saying, saving our lives to be <coughs> fruitful and to be the lives, the Christian lives that God intended, living for the king, faith and works, tame that tongue, and true wisdom and humility. I think the last two, uh, Ian was very focused around the, the danger and the amazing opportunity that the tongue represents, and then more latterly, how we go about taming it, and that's to do with true wisdom and humility. So now we're drawing to a close. There's just two uh, topics left. Consider his will is today, and then next week is patience, integrity, and prayer. What I'd like us to do today is consider James 4, the whole of the chapter, and the first six verses of chapter 5. Under this title, consider his will, that's God's will, of course. And it appealed to me that there's four sections, four titles that we can systematically go through from these uh, passages of scripture and I would just emphasize that this is intensely practical stuff one of the um, commentators uh, I kind of noticed he made the point that you don't get a lot of doctrine in James in James's epistle but you do get a lot of practical um, instruction and guidance with respect to how our understanding and appreciation of core Christian doctrine about salvation and discipleship, how that manifests itself in committed lives. Um, so in that sense, so we're embracing the life of faith. That's our overall topic. And today we're going to be considering God's will in that context. And the four topics that appeal to me is James at the beginning of chapter four goes into quite a lot of detail with very aggressive uh, almost confrontational language about the context of the world we live in. So that's saints living in a sinful world. He then goes on to challenges, challenges about the choice that we have. And again, it's, um, it's kind of provocative language. You're either a friend of the world, and if you are that, then you're an enemy of God. Um, number three, Planning and living in the light of God's will. That's the core section really for our overall topic today of consider his will. And what appealed to me from the passage associated, that, associated with that is how our awareness of being on the brink of eternity 
impacts the way we live and the way we plan for the future. And then interestingly, the first six verses of chapter 5, they just appeal to me as an eternal perspective on material wealth. And I do find um, that section in particular very practically challenging as to um, we're described as stewards of, of the material things that God gives us. And if we have an eternal perspective on this life, then real faith should have an impact uh, manifesting itself in the way we manage our material wealth. So let's go to, to read our um, scriptures together. So we're, we're in James 4 verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet but cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not, do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us, but he gives us more, but he gives us more grace? That is why the scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favour to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will free from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them, speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbour? Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent who was not opposing you. I think you'll agree quite um, extreme, provocative 
language. So let's have a look at um, these four topics that I um, alluded to earlier. The first is um, the context, saints in a sinful world. In verse, the opening verses of chapter 4, uh, James says, Fights and quarrels uh, emanate from desires that battle within you. And he goes on to talk about unsatisfied wants. He accuses these disciples that he's writing to of killing and coveting. Um, to hate is to murder in your heart is something I, I mentioned. So I'm sure that, um, well, I'm not sure, but my, my, my sense is that um, this wasn't a literal murderous thing that was going on. It's more of an attitude of heart that is born out of um, wrong thoughts and motives that are in our potentially in our hearts. And again, this is about the outworking of what we're supposed to have, which is faith. And James's observation is that there are people who have um, unsatisfied wants. They have this orientation which is towards hatred in their hearts and coveting each other's belongings. Um, asking for things with wrong mo motives, verse 3. Um, the implication is, you know, when you ask for something, it's all about you. Um, and then there's a fixation with temporary pleasures. And he talks about the battle within us. Friendship with the world is hatred towards God. I was, uh, I had a kind of strange week this week at work. I've been, spent most of the week in London. And I have a, a customer who is the most wealthy person I know, I think. Uh, he really lives a life where money is no object. And he's relatively young. And um, I probably see him twice a year. And each time he has a, a new car. And it's just interesting for me to observe how his car choice has migrated. And his latest one, for anyone who's into cars, is a, is a Rolls-Royce Wraith. This is a, a, a young man's um, kind of plaything. It costs 300,000 pounds. And this was to replace a Ferrari, which he had for six months, which was probably something like the same money. And I just had a real sense of, um, with all of his wealth, he's so restless. Uh, he's also like that in business. He's kind of all over the place. He's never settled. And um, I just have this, I have a lot of respect for the, for the man, but I just have this sense that in a, a world where money is no object and he's inherited his wealth, he doesn't know what it's like not to be a millionaire, there is this unsatisfied want. It reminded me of um, the lady... Lang Zen, her name is, in Moonlai, who was the first lady to greet me. This is the lady who then was 85. And the, the word that came to me is godliness with contentment is great gain. This is a, a lady who has, from a material point of view, virtually nothing. And yet she is so richly contented with um, what the Lord has provided and primarily um, that's a spiritual experience that she has. 
my point here is that this is the context in which James is giving us instructions about how our lives should be when they're based on faith. And what he's saying is we have, we're operating with a, um, a kind of sinful streak within us that is going to be there until we go to the glory. And he describes this thing that's battling within us. And it's in that context of this sinful desires or worldly desires, many of which may not really be um, sinful in themselves, but when um, allowed to take control over our lives, they have a real damaging, actually fatal impact on the, the value of our service for the Lord Jesus. I kind of found, found myself thinking, well, you know, James must have been writing to a, a few real bad Christians here. I'm nothing like that. But actually, if you meditate on it, and although it is extreme language that he uses, um, killing and um, coveting later on, he talks about uh, them being adulterous people. Um, don't miss the point. You know, Satan can um, poison our minds and our perspectives in very subtle ways. And I think certainly the, even in this strong language, there's an important lesson for me and for you too. I'd like to bring in verse 11 of chapter 4. Do not slander one another. That is about judging. Uh, th these are my words. His, his instruction is do not slander one another. My summary of what comes next in verse 11 is that's about judging and we ought to leave that to God. Again, it's another, um, kind of say, propensity that we have, uh, an inclination because of our sinful orientation in the world is that we jump to uh, judge each other and slander one another. May that be far from the experience of people in the Church of God in Manchester. We're not in the business of um, slandering, backbiting, talking about each other behind our backs. If that does go on, then it has to be in a spirit of love. I think it is appropriate for us to um, consider each other. In fact, it's a responsibility of overseers to talk about the flock um, in, in a private way, and we do. And it always leads into prayer. I think that's the only orientation that we should have when we're considering each other. It's not about making judgments. It's not about slander. It's about love and encouragement. And love sometimes is tough. Because sometimes we have to hear something that is completely appropriate. But not what we want to hear. And we have to um, be prepared to take that on board and vice versa sometimes give that feedback um, when that's our responsibility to do so so again we're in a world where um, slander and judgment uh, judging each other is commonplace and you know in some 
in some contexts it's all you hear from certain people let that be far from our experience in, a, in the church of God in Manchester verse 6 I think is a wonderfully positive thing um, in this context that we're talking about saints in a sinful world um, James says but he gives us more grace God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble sometimes it's hard to do the right thing uh, particularly if we're thinking of, about slandering or uh, frustrations that we have as we observe behavior of other people um, sometimes it's hard for us to bite our tongue and to control our thoughts and to say the right thing um, but the message from James is he gives us more grace and if we can take that humble approach um, in our lives in our thoughts in our relationships with each other then God will give us the necessary grace so that's the context of um, this message about considering God's will um, let's move to the next point um, I actually have got that title wrong if you look at it so that's a um, perhaps too rushed for me but the gist of what you of the point is there so the choice of course isn't to either be a friend of the world or an enemy of God it's to be uh, a friend of the world in which case James's language is you're an enemy of God or to be an enemy of the world and a friend of God that's the point so apologies for that um, kind of unthought through title you get the strong language um, that I mentioned before um, James alludes to murder adultery hatred he, um, he refers to some people as double-minded that's I think two-faced and you think well I'm not a murderer I'm not an adulterer um, I really can't think of anyone I might hate um, and I'm pretty straightforward I'm not two-faced well these are aggressive bold statements and I think they're designed to arrest our attention so uh, my appeal is don't overlook them and think this is for somebody else because these attitudes can be in our minds all too often the first thing and we're going to verse 7 of chapter 4 is his instruction is submit to God when you've got your Bible on your iPad, it's really easy to, to click on the Greek and then follow it through. And in our discussion, um, I think it was a discussion in a district oversight, actually, we were getting ourselves into, into quite deep water. And, and the, the heavyweights, the likes of um, Brian Johnson and, and JDT, weren't there. So uh, we can often kind of explore a, a Greek route and easily get the wrong end of the stick. So we should be... Uh, very careful about doing that and, and uh, focus more on it but that said I clicked on this word submit to God and it led me to the very same word led me to Luke 2 and 51 this was referred to a couple of times I think in the remembrance and it's about uh, when Mary and Joseph had found the Lord having lost him for a, a couple of days it says that he went home and was subject to them. 
and you kind of have the sense of willingly subjecting yourself to an authority and James in his instructions um, to live a life of faith the evidence of that that life of faith should be someone who visibly in every aspect of their behavior and life are submitting themselves subjecting themselves allowing themselves to be to operate under God's rule and under God's instructions that should characterize our lives and a lovely illustration in the uh, practical life of the Lord Jesus he then goes on to say resist the devil and he will flee from you this is a again looking at the word resist it gave me the sense that it's it's not a passive thing it's a an active proactive thing and it requires some degree of sensitivity awareness um, that actually you know as we're confronted with an opportunity a temptation uh, a trial of some kind then if we have the right attitude then perhaps we're looking to see if this is a possible trap that we might fall into and it's about actively resisting the devil and the promise is that he will flee from you um, the devil can be very subtle and he can draw us away from um, living a life of faith and moving into a life of dependence just like the world around us on the things that we uh, feel we need to do as part of our society and those things can be so subtle um, and the instruction from James in a very practical way is to resist the devil in all of his uh, subtle approaches and he will flee from you. I've used this illustration before. Um, it's about my dad when he was, um, I don't know, maybe a bit older than I am now. And um, in a Bible class, there was, he was talking about faith and doubts. And um, the young people were saying, do you ever doubt? And his response was, no, actually, I don't. And um, you might think, well, that's kind of a dangerous or maybe a bit of an arrogant place to be. Well, actually, it wasn't. This was a real conviction based on many years of a life, from my perspective, someone who lived with him for a long time, um, very committed and dependent on the Lord, really a life of faith. What happens? Well, I do have a sense that um, while temptations and trials and difficulties are all there they're not as impactful so he had no doubts because he could look back on his life of faith and say even in times of difficulty well actually uh, there's some good in it I think that's maybe the spirit of what's um, talked about when we resist the devil and he will flee from you There's a lot of um, commentary in these verses around uh, repentance and confession. We have them listed there. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. That's the two-faced thing. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Turn your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. You kind of think, what's he on about? You know, is this the, uh, the appealing life of... Christian discipleship 
Um, I think James is underlining the importance of contrite confession, even in the context of subtle ways in which we've got our priorities wrong. And again, he, he seems to be a master at using language that arrests your attention so that you think a bit more about it. The risk is it's so extreme language, you, you can kind of gloss over it and say, well, he must be talking about somebody else, not me. Um, I would just encourage us to stop and reflect on these things um, because they do have, they're extreme, but they're uh, extremely relevant to us, even perhaps in our um, relatively mild um, situation with respect to the sin that we're, we're uh, confronted with every day. I was uh, drawn to Psalm 51 and the sacrifice of, of the Lord is a, a broken and a contrite, a broken heart and a contrite spirit. This was, uh, of course, David's psalm of repentance after his sin with Bathsheba. And it's worth reflecting regularly on Psalm 51 because I think that um, helps us understand the seriousness of sin to God and how important it is from God's perspective that what he sees in us is a genuine contrite um, that means crushed spirit. I don't know how superficial your times of confession are. I feel mine are regularly. We rather blandly talk about adoration, confession, thanksgiving and supplication as our uh, framework for prayer. And so often it can be a general, I'm sorry for all the sins I've done. <laughs> Uh, you know, intentionally or unwittingly. I don't think that's the spirit of what James is talking about here. He's talking about a self-examination. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. The consequence of a contrite, broken spirit is, that's where this expression, I think, comes from. Therefore, green, mourn, grieve, mourn, and wail. Um, I don't think James is advocating that we come to an assembly prayer meeting and we're all kind of broken and, and um, grieving and mourning and wailing. I think it's a personal thing. And as we get a real sense of the holiness of God, uh, there should be, if we're allowing faith to have its way in our lives, there should be a real sense of God's holiness and our sinfulness. And it manifests itself with that attitude. Um, laughter to mourning and joy to gloom. I, I think he's talking about the laughter and joy that perhaps we get superficially from a life involved in earthly things. Our, our joy and our praise should have its origin in things of far more substance than the material things around us. He then goes on to talk about what I've called uh, faith's reward. He says, come near to God and he will come near to you. That's verse 8 of chapter 4. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Um, often we 
wring our hands with frustration around why the Lord doesn't seem to be blessing the West. We celebrate the fact that he's blessing other parts of the world. This is such a regular comment that is made. Um, and I, I just feel that as we do this deep dive into this practical epistle from James, there's some very telling things that we in the West need to take to heart with respect to the superficial way we approach impurities in our lives and the superficial way in which we just allow non-important things to take priority. And if we can strive to put those things into the right context and complexion, then the promises that God will come near to us and if we humble ourselves before the Lord, he will lift us up. It's not that we should always be grieving, mourning and wailing. Of course we shouldn't. That should be the impact our regret for sin has. We're to be joyful Christians, but our joy should be in the Lord. To our third point, and it's uh, planning and living in the light of God's will. Um, we're now towards the end of chapter 4 and he says um, we shouldn't have this attitude that says today or tomorrow we'll do this, that or the other. It uh, reminds me of the parable of the man who um, said to himself I'm going to knock down my barns and build bigger ones and I'm going to um, party because you know I'm very well blessed and James is cautioning about this. It's a very similar um, parable, if you like, to what the Lord was teaching as well, that you don't know about tomorrow. So there's uh, an instruction here on, I believe, planning. Someone has said we should live like the Lord's coming tomorrow, but we should plan like he isn't. Um, and again, this has very practical implications with respect to um, our working lives, what we do with our money, our savings. Um, how should we plan for the future? Uh, we'll come back to that when we look at um, uh, questions maybe for this evening. How do we um, understand God's will? My mind always goes to Romans 12, very uh, familiar passage of scripture um, which says that it encourages us to be non-conformists so offer your bodies as living sacrifice sacrifices acceptable to God and he then says then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is his um, good pleasing and perfect will so how do we discern God's will? Well, I think it comes with the territory as James is encouraging us to live every aspect of our lives by faith. Then there will be a much clearer sense of the direction that God would have us go. We're so reluctant, aren't we, to um, make a step of faith. I kind of spotted the illustration there. I didn't comment on it, but uh, a little boy jumping into his dad's arms has no hesitation because he's got total confidence that his dad's going to be there 
and catch him. And, you know, that's, I guess, the, the concept of the leap of faith. I think James is saying that um, people who are living by faith, one of the practical evidences of that is they're living by faith and not dependent on the security of the things that the world offers. It's a real challenge to me to reflect on to what extent do I live by faith? I live very comfortably, I think, and it's all very secure-ish. Um, but maybe a real life of faith is being prepared to let go of some of those, um, some of our securities. There's a, a really interesting verse, which I, again, I would like to attach this to a question um, this evening, which you'll see in a second. Verse 17 of chapter 4, it says, Anyone who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. This is, uh, I kind of got stuck on this verse. It arrested my attention. Because if there's something in God's word and it has lots of, it has a broad scope of application. If it's uh, something that God has led me to see that I need to do personally, and maybe it's to take a step of faith. Um, I guess we're all in our own little minds thinking about what it might be in our own circumstances. But if God is compelling us to do something, maybe we've seen something in his will um, that we know he wants us to do and we don't do it, then we're sinning. And the impact of sin is terrible on our service and on our lives. It also has an, an application, I think a really profound application in our approach to doctrinal teaching. If we see clearly from God's word that we should be doing something and we choose to go in another direction, then the implication is that that is a sinful thing and therefore abhorrent and displeasing to God. We'll have a look at that um, a little later. And coming to our... Uh, Final section, an eternal perspective on material wealth. Um, the first few verses of chapter 5 are the ones that allude to this. Um, I won't read them again because our time has gone, but I'd encourage you to refresh your memory. We didn't talk about reading the epistle to James, from James in one sitting. I would encourage us all to do that. It doesn't take very long and you get a real sense for the whole of the book. But my summary is that James is encouraging uh, people who have been blessed with material wealth not to hoard. What God gives us is for using, not for hoarding. And he goes on to talk about workers who've mowed your field and you haven't paid them. Kind of a bizarre thing. But for me, the application is God's given us wealth to support people who are in his service in all kinds of different ways. And if we're sitting on a pile and not contributing to God's work, then we're missing the point in terms of what God um, has given us our wealth for. <coughs> this is all in the context of the temporiness of our life and eternity that we have. Um, we should have that kind of fleeting temporary orientation about the possessions that God has given us and I'm preaching very much to myself 
here because it's challenging stuff. He goes on to talk about corroded uh, silver and gold. Their corrosion will testify against you. It's kind of bizarre, isn't it? Because silver and gold don't corrode, I don't think, not unless the environment is very, very aggressive. But it speaks to the um, temporary, superficial value of silver and gold. And God blesses us with these things so we can use them to his service, not so we can uh, make a stockpile and then somehow uh, pass them on to somebody else afterwards. Again, really practical things here because we have um, our families to consider. So the challenge for, for me is, does money matter? I think it does, but to what extent? Um, are we putting our material possessions to God's use? For me, that was a, a compelling challenge from the first verses in chapter 5. So our time's gone. Just some questions from me tonight uh, for reflection, perhaps this afternoon, and, and come back. Um, and Ian has some as well, which we'll uh, review at the start of this evening as well. So how can we increase our sensitivity to sin? James tries, I think, to heighten our sensitivity to sin by confronting us with some pretty direct language. And we can so often become insensitive to sin in our lives, and clearly that's critical. Uh, consider practical illustrations and applications of James 4 and 17. That's the verse that says, anyone who knows what he should do and doesn't do it, sins. Anyone, uh, so there you, there you have the verse. Um, sorry, that, there's three questions. That Question three is the verse associated with question two, typo there. So the third question is, how do we balance saving for our future and our families versus spending at appropriate spending because there's no tomorrow? Very practical um, think about thing about our material wealth. And finally, just a, a heads up for next week, we'll be considering the final verses in chapter 5 under the title Patience, Integrity and Prayer. Three profound evidences um, that should be very clear in a person who's living by faith. Shall we have our closing prayer?